Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Parents need to take care of themselves and their children. I think a lot of times as parents, um, like you, you, you mentioned earlier, is, you know, we, we want to protect our kids and help our kids so much that we forget about ourselves sometimes and that we need support too, that we might need therapy too, or we might need to have a discussion with a friend or whatever the case is. We need self-care um, in addition to our kids. We can take care of our kids and ourselves. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, I have Dr. Jesse Gold, who is a psychiatrist and assistant professor and director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Gold also writes for the popular press and has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Time, Forbes, In Style, and Self, among many others. Dr. Gold, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So... You know, today we're going to be talking about coping with tragedy and processing traumatic events. I know you've been in the news a lot lately, um, you know, writing for the New York Times and some other articles around it. Obviously, our country was rocked yet again recently with another school shooting. Um, So I'm just, you know, looking for your expertise on, you know, how parents can cope with it and then Mm -hmm. also how our youth can cope with it. So, um, Obviously, parents and children alike were both affected by the event, whether you were there, you know, in Texas, whether you were anywhere else in the country, even in the world. Um, I know you do a lot of work on mental health and burnout. My first question to you is, how do we nurture our mental health and news burnout when event updates are literally everywhere, whether it's social media apps, the TV, people are talking about it by the water cooler. I mean, it's everywhere when something like this happens. But How can we protect our mental health and burnout when an event like this takes place? It's a really good question. I think a lot of people feel like they have to be informed up to date all the time, in part because that's how our culture is, but also just because it feels like if you aren't, somehow you're not parenting correctly or you're not advocating enough or you're somehow not doing something correctly as we give ourselves that label often. I think it's important that you actually pay attention to your emotions around things and say like, okay, I'm grinding my teeth when I'm scrolling social media. That might be a sign that I shouldn't be scrolling social media right now, or I'm actually getting angry and I don't really want to be angry right now, or it's not great that I'm angry right now. So maybe I'll take a break and do something that's not related to it. It's okay to take a break. The news comes back. Our news is all the time. You're not going to miss anything. If you're afraid you're going to miss something, you can always tell a friend if you're going to take a prolonged break from something and say, can you just tell me like a one sentence digest of things? I think it's also important to keep in mind that things like alerts can be triggering. So like the New York Times pushes a news alert, right? And if that news alert 
is something that you don't really want to be seeing or reading that can be hard for you. So you also don't need the news alert. You can say you don't want those anymore. And I think being just more mindful about the way that these things impact us and the fact that they're allowed to both impact us and we can take a break and it's not going to make us bad at what we're doing. Yes, uh, very good points. That's true. And I think I've talked a lot on this you know, podcast about you know, boundary setting and self-care and really knowing your limits. And I think, like you said, just being intentional about that, being mindful about the choices we make, you know, what we're scrolling on, you know, how much we're taking in and sometimes knowing when it's enough, you know, when it's too much. And then, you know, taking those breaks, I think is fabulous advice. For sure. And I think people often say like lately, they're saying like, oh, I'm numb to this. I don't have feelings about this. And I think numbness is a feeling and it's a valid one when this keeps happening. It's not a great one because it just means that our culture has become too accustomed to things we shouldn't be accustomed to. But it's it happened in the way that we viewed COVID deaths. It happens in the way we're viewing gun deaths. I think we have to be able to say like, okay, I feel numb. Like, what is that about? And actually process that further and not just be mad at ourselves for that either. Exactly. Well, you actually just uh, contributed to an article about this. I'd love to touch a little more on psychic numbing. Um, you, the, t- the, the article that you recently um, contributed with is the psychic numbing of mass tragedies and how stressful events can cause us to detach and disengage and even be desensitized. Um, so let's speak a little bit more about that. So what happens to, you know, let's say our, our brain, um, you know, when something like that happens and do we consciously check out or is it just something that just automatically happens as a way to protect ourselves from everything that's happening? Sure. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, maybe it's unconscious. There's probably times where it's conscious and like those times are valid too, you know, like where you actually need to check out. But I do think for the most part, our brain saying like, this is a lot or I can't do this again, or those emotions were too heavy for me, or those emotions are going to impact something I'm trying to do. So I think we often push emotions down when we're trying to do work, we're trying to take care of kids, we're trying to manage our family stressors, whatever. And so emotions can feel, especially as overwhelming emotions, can feel like they're going to disrupt that. And so I think our brain is basically disconnecting us from having that happen when these things keep happening. Um, And we almost it's almost like we just got used to the feeling and are not as drawn to it. So sometimes people will say something like 9-11 kept people's memory captivated because it was like this one event, there's this image, there's this picture, you can go back to that, you can feel what you felt in the moment because it was like this one time and this one picture. But something like COVID deaths, there's like, what are you supposed to go to for that? Where do the emotions come from? Are they drawn from when they just talk about it on TV? Or are you supposed to be like getting emotions with every number? And so your body just sort of is like, huh, I'm not as like captivated by that and right now. And I can actually keep working. I can actually keep parenting and protects you, if that makes sense. Yes. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, I remember back, you know, when the pandemic first started and you, you heard about that first death, you know, or uh, you, the first person that you knew personally that, that you know, um, you know, tested positive. And, you know, it was a very different type of psychological um, physiological feeling that you got versus now, you know, when people say, I had someone the other day tell me that they tested positive for COVID and they were at home and it definitely didn't hit the right, the same way as it did at the Mm -hmm. very beginning of the pandemic. So, um, you know, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think that's true even when it comes to, I remember when I was getting my doctorate, there was a class I took, it was called violence in the media. And Mm -hmm. it talked about that same type of phenomenon where, 
you know, when we watch the very first, let's say, scary movie or violent movie, you, you know, like you said, we're more captivated by it and we might be more, you know, uh, physiologically um, uh, affected by it. But now, you know, years later, you know, you've watched a million violent movies and the same type of feeling, you know, when someone's getting shot on TV in a movie, you're not as affected by it. Is that kind of the same type of, um, uh, I guess, uh, phenomenon as what, what we're talking about? Yeah, I almost like to picture it a bit like, you know, there was that show Fear Factor like a long time oh, ago yeah. where they would just like put people into these situations where it was just like flooding of emotions and fear, right? Like, so it's not one spider, it's like 75 spiders. And so I think it's sort of like that and except it's a bit more of like a casual buildup to that. So, you know, you don't have that exact intense fear that you have like with the one spider, but when you see a spider, again maybe it's a little bit less and then you you know we do that for treatment right with exposure but it's sort of like that but it's not in the way that it's actually beneficial to you being able to do something you want to do like be around spiders or fly on an airplane it's more like okay how do I deal with the constant flood of these like traumatic stories and traumatic things on the news it's like your body's doing the same sort of reaction instead of just like that flooding with the cage of spiders thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But I did notice, I feel like, um, you know, there's, there's been a couple recently, uh, Buffalo, you know, was one of them. Um, there was one recently that I saw you post about, um, on Instagram just a few days ago. I mean, there's, they're, they're happening, uh, quite often it feels like these days. Um, do you think that people, um, in our country seem, it seemed to be like there was a lot more buzz about it for this particular school shooting. Do you think that's because it affected children and it affected a school versus let's say a grocery store or, you know, a a movie theater or something like that, um, of why this seemed to have much more impact on people? Yes. I mean, I think it's hard to say that out loud because it's sort of acknowledging that we view different things differently in our like perspectives. But I think the reason Newtown was so powerful and that people thought change would happen then was because it was kids, little kids, you know, and I think that there's a mutual agreement among people, even if they disagree on a lot of things that little kids shouldn't be dying. And I think it's easier for people to feel emotions about that, even if they have views that might disagree with the cause of that. Um, I think it's why like childhood cancer is something that raises a lot more money sometimes than like, you know, actual cancer, because people see that and they say, well, I, you know, they haven't even lived life yet. And so it has this different draw to our psyche in sort of what we view the life course to be. Um, And I think that's part of it in drawing our attention to something like that. But I think it's sad because we need to talk about all of them. And, you know, we need to talk about the ones that are related more to like race and socioeconomic status or whatever the choice of, you know, population might be where it's not pulling people as much. We also should discuss that, I think. Right. And and we should. Um, and like you said, I think there is, if you want to call it a bias, maybe, or um, like you said, like there's that unspoken rule that, you know, when it affects young children, it's definitely hits a little differently, you know, sometimes. But um, but obviously we can go into, you know, all sorts of different directions right now on, you know, the political um, aspect sure. of it. But, um, but you know, how, how can 
we, I say we as a society, we as a community, how can we feel safe when our workplaces, when our schools, when common places like movie theaters and grocery stores are being attacked via shootings? How are we supposed to feel safe? That's a hard one. You know, I think that it depends a lot on the person too, because if you've had a period, like a previous, you know, experience that was all at all similar, you're going to be more triggered by this kind of situation. If you have a history of depression or anxiety, you're going to be struggling more with these kind of situations too. So obviously it's person dependent too, but I think we have to kind of take an AA mentality to things and sort of live a day at a time as best as we can, because as much as we'd love to, we can't predict the future and thinking constantly about the future can make us very anxious because there's a lot of uncertainty in the future and there's only so many things we can control. So I think it's important to take that sort of control that you can control stance on things and think about the things in your day-to-day life that you do have control over. Um, you do have control over the conversations you have with your kids. You do have a control over your household. You do have, you know, there's these times where we can take a little bit more of like proactive action to, you know, do something where we might ha- have control in other situations. And I think that can make us feel safer. I think advocacy has always been sort of a coping mechanism for me, but I think it's also helpful in these situations. It can feel sometimes like it's falling on deaf ears, but I think that if you're feeling unsafe, like having these conversations with the right people that do have the ability to make places safer is worthwhile, even if it might not change something, you still did something to help this situation. You did, you still did something yourself. And I think that can make a big difference too. Yes, absolutely. And I know I posted something last week about focusing on what you can control. Because I think sometimes when there's so much ambiguity and there's so much uncertainty and so much fear and anxiety starting to build up after an, uh, um, you know, an event like that, that you do start to feel like you're a little out of control. And you have to kind of hone in a little bit and see what you can control, how you can, you know, move and advocate and, you know, try and make change um, and control your own environment, um, even when the world seems out of control. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think even the people who constantly are the outspoken advocates on some of these things, like say they're not hopeless. So I think for me, that also helps because it's not a hopeless task if the people who do it every day don't feel hopeless by it. Yes, absolutely. And I know you mentioned about conversations at home, and I'm a, I'm a big advocate of parents having very open and frequent conversations at home with their kids. And I know that you recently contributed to um, another article in the New York Times called An Age-by-Age Guide to Talk to Children About Mass Shootings. And I even wrote a blog about it last week talking about um, mostly smaller children. That's kind of my forte and um, you know my specialty and who I work with in private practice. But how do you suggest a parent can talk to their teen, since I know you mostly work with teens and young adults and parents, how do you um, suggest a parent to talk to their teen or young adult about the events without scaring them, without feeling like they have to stay home from school to protect themselves or, um, you know, just feeling like something like that could happen to them at, at any given moment? For sure. I mean, I think that's a, it's a really great article. So I would advise everyone to kind of go read it and also read your blog post because I think they do, the author does a really great job breaking it down with really tangible techniques and ways to do things, which doesn't always happen in articles. But I will say, so I see college kids a lot and I think, you know, we 
would love if our kids didn't have access to this information all of the time, but it's just not true. Like, especially when you get to like people who have cell phones and computers, like just as you feel flooded by it, they are getting the same messages. They're going to school, their friends are talking about it. There's news in like history class or whatever, and they're talking about it. So you can't assume that they didn't hear anything and that's not the right way of approaching it because you'll also feel like somebody else is going to have control of the conversation that way, right? So the most important thing is to start the conversation and have the conversation and let it center on emotions, you know, like ask them how they're feeling, tell them how you're feeling. You're allowed to have feelings as a parent and it models feelings for the kid you know like I say kid but I'm 16 18 but I also feel the same with younger kids like if you pretend that you're like fine with all of this then they're gonna feel like something's wrong because they're not fine with all of this so it's important to talk about your own emotions and their emotions but also give them the space to ask questions and then you know a lot of times what I have noticed with parents of you know, teens and college kids is like, they feel like their teenagers aren't communicating with them and their teenager feels like they're communicating, but all they did was slam their door, right? And so right. The, the teenager thinks that they said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm done with this. These are my emotions. But the, I say to the teenager, like, you actually didn't say anything. Your parents have no idea what's wrong with you. That wasn't like a very effective way of communicating. Right. But in the same respect, like, you know, as a parent, you can kind of lead that and say, like, listen, if you don't want to talk about this right now, that is more than fine but I just want you to know that I'm here that I'm a person you can come to about this that you can ask questions to and I'd really like to be able to ask you how you're doing with all this at another later point is there a time that you'd be okay with me doing that is there a way you would like me to do that and like let them sort of have control over their emotional experience because it's true like not everyone will be affected by all of this not everyone will want to talk about it all of the time but they might get to a point where they will and it might be tomorrow it might be weeks from now but knowing that you implanted the fact that you're that person and can be that person is really important yes absolutely and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you know to let them or allow them and let them have that those emotions um and then also to make sure that they have that open door policy. And it may not be in that moment. Um, it may be the next day or a week later or whatever the case is, but just to let them know that you're going to be checking in on them because you care about them and that when they're ready, then they can come to you and you're going to have that open door for them. I think that's so important, especially working with that, um, that teenage, young adult age group. For sure. People are like, oh, my teen just doesn't talk to me. And some of that's true because some of that's a phase sure. and maybe they are turning to friends and stuff. But I think it's still important. And like a lot of my college age kids still have parents like come to appointments or talk to their parents or ask me to fill in their parents is because they're still really not quite an adult yet. And you need that support. And so even if they want to pretend like they can get the support elsewhere and maybe they are, it is nice to know that you're there too. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you always hear, you know, um, news articles, really, there's a lot of news articles out there that say, you know, how to talk to kids after something like this happens. And, you know, for the parent to talk to the child first, especially on on the younger side, I think of the older side, too. But since I focus more on the little ones of, you know, having that conversation first, whether whatever it is, whether it's curse words, whether it's, you know, um, something like this, whether it's, you know, um, teaching a child, they're going to get their period, you know, I mean, just I'm just talking about in general, Hearing it from a parent first, you know, accompanying alcohol and drugs, whatever it is, versus hearing it at school, finding it on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it was interesting because I have a second grader and I didn't quite talk to her about it the day of it happened because I wanted to protect her from it, right? I had this parental instinct to say, you know what, she's only eight. Um, I know what happened at an um, an elementary school, and I'm not in denial that it could, you know, potentially happen anywhere at any time. Um, But I I wanted, it was, I just wanted to think about it more about how I was actually going to talk to her about it. So I hadn't had the conversation with her yet. However, she went to school the next morning, and there was a sheriff in the front office all day as extra protection, right? I mean, the school district had police officers at every single elementary school that next day, just just for extra protection. And she came home that day, and she, and, and she said, oh, mom, you know, there was a police officer in my school all day. And I said, oh, why is that? And she said, well, because there, there was something really bad that happened at another elementary school and a lot of kids got hurt. And so they were there to protect us. And that's all she said. And I said, wow, that's great. Did you hear anything else? You know, what else did, you know, did your teacher say anything or did you know, any other kids say anything? She said, no, that was about it. And I said, all right, well, you know, and I said, how do you feel about this? And she said, I feel safe. You know, I was happy they were there today. It made me feel safer. And I said, great. Well, if you have anything else you want to talk about, let me know. And that was it. So you know, I think even as parents, you know, we have this pressure to constantly, you know, I think open conversations are fantastic. I think, um, you know, talking to our kids first about it is great. But even if they do hear it at school first, I think you can still have a follow-up conversation with your kids even after the fact, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, I kind of do this the same way I do like patient care. So I can't assume a patient has never seen anything about a psychiatric medicine ever in their life. Like I know there's stuff online, they name them by name in movies, like it's impossible to come into my office with like zero knowledge, right. And so I always ask people like what they know and what barriers there are to them like wanting to take medicine because of what they know and it's very similar right like your kid they found out the information but it doesn't mean you can't help them with it it doesn't mean that you can't like help them process it or understand it or fill in blanks like or correct misinformation and myths because I've had friends that have their kids have gone to school and they've mentioned that like mental illness is the cause of all of this and if you've seen any of my rants yeah. I <laughs> believe that um, mental illness is not at all linked to this and that we should take it out of the conversation because it's extremely stigmatizing and so like my friend said like how do I correct that and I said like correct it you know like have a conversation with your kid where you try to correct it it's hard but it's important that they know that you think a little differently or that you've read something differently and that you can help inform them too you know right exactly now what do you suggest to a parent who isn't quite coping with it very well maybe themselves um and again no judgment I and mean, we all cope with things differently and i'm obviously as a as a licensed you know mental health clinician i i you know respect that without bias but what do you what do you suggest to a parent who might somewhat be in denial about it? I've heard a lot of parents over the last week or so say, "Well, I know our neighborhood's safe. That would never happen at our school." So, I'm not worried about it at all. Are they in some sort of denial or is I mean, how do you how do you work with a parent like that who feels like that they don't feel that they, everything feels safe and that would never happen to them? I mean, I guess it depends again on the person. So there's probably a stages of change conversation where you kind of see if the denial is so strong that you can't have a conversation around what ifs or where the denial is coming from being protective in that sense. If the person's more open to conversations, obviously you can have them. I think that in general, as a parent, 
it's important that you don't blame yourself for whatever it is you're feeling. Like there's just so much like mommy guilt and all this stuff. And so people, when they have feelings and they worry that those feelings could be impacting other people, they just kind of push down their own and, you know, focus on the other people because their job is to caregive as my job is as a mental health provider too. And I'm not always good at taking care of my own self for the same reason. But I think it's important that in these situations, if you are, having a lot of feelings or you are struggling with it that you actually do something to help yourself and not just focus on the fact that you have to help your kids like that's part of it true but I think you also have to say what works for me in these situations like what am I feeling what do I enjoy to do to cope what usually helps me who can I talk to I'm a big fan of therapy I go once a week not every parent in this country needs therapy Um, not every parent in this country can get therapy for lots of reasons Either. But I think that, you know, having somebody you can have open and honest conversations with, if it's your partner, if it's your best friend, if whoever it is, like find a person and have that person be someone that you tell the truth to. And they might challenge you, right? Like if a person was like my best friend and I was exhibiting more signs of denial, I would hope that they might question me in a way that wouldn't feel accusatory or like they're calling me out, but in a way that feels supportive and leads me to think more. Yes, absolutely. And that also goes for, let's say, the parent who may be uh, overly anxious about it um, to the other extreme where they don't let their kids go to school for the week because they're too scared something like that might happen. You know, the what ifs are so strong where they overcompensate for their anxiety. And so that now they're keeping their kids and, you know, thinking they're protecting them, but keeping them and shielding them so much to where the anxiety flows over from the parent right to the child. Oh, for sure. And anxiety is so contagious. If you ever talk to someone who's anxious, which I'm sure you've done in your job and I do in my job, it's like you immediately kind of are anxious and you're like, where did that come from? And it's just because it's that contagious in behavior, in speech pattern, in the way that it is. And I think we just have to be mindful of that. Like you're allowed to be anxious as a parent, but you also should try to show your kids that you're also figuring out how to deal with it because they might also be anxious whether they grew up in a household with anxiety and that contributed it's genetic or it's entirely not related it's helpful to see like oh my mom also had anxiety but like she when she feels anxious she deep breathes she meditates she goes for a run she whatever and then they can start doing that with you yes and I think you know I think it's really important you mentioned earlier and I just want to reiterate that parents need to take care of themselves and their children I think a lot of times as parents um like you you, you mentioned earlier is you know, we, we want to protect our kids and help our kids so much that we forget about ourselves sometimes and that we need support too, that we might need therapy too, or we might need to have a discussion with a friend or whatever the case is. We need self-care um, in addition to our kids. We can take care of our kids and ourselves. Oh, for sure. And we have to because they relate to each other, right? Like you actually are not going to be a good caregiver if you aren't taking care of yourself. And it's really important that we think like that. We don't because we're taught to prioritize other people in all sorts of ways, only compounded by probably profession and growing up in whatever household you grew up in. But it's important to know that they are so interrelated and you're so much better at like doing the one fully if you're also taking care of yourself too. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, um, would you share a few coping skills? I know you mentioned a few a few minutes ago about meditation and whatnot, but some coping skills on that you what you recommend to your patients on how to cope when a stressful event occurs, um, and then maybe how to set boundaries on exposure to the event, um, you know, and the potential anxiety that it provokes? How, how can we self-care when it, and, and cope with these types of events? For sure. So I will blanket say that my take on coping skills is we need to think about it more as like hobbies and things we enjoy instead of just doing whatever trendy coping skill there is or the one that other people do. It's important that you try them out sort of like you would a hobby and say like, oh, actually, I hate running or actually I hate doing this and like you know taking the time to figure out which ones work for you and so I don't like to prescribe coping skills for that reason but I do like you know think that there are it's important to think about the fact that there's like a lot of ones you can choose from certain ones work in certain situations and not others and some work in more acute situations than in others right so in an acute situation like you just saw something on tv your heart starts racing you're feeling very flooded with emotions literally like naming your emotion in that setting, asking yourself how you're doing is a coping skill. But so is just sort of like being more aware of your body and trying to get yourself kind of calmed down by either, you know, focusing on things like naming five things around the room or like naming five things you can see, four things you can hear, like kind of going down all of the senses that way. Or I also keep like stress putty and a stress ball on my bed or on my like desk. And I think that's really helpful um, if you're feeling like kind of overwhelmed in the moment because also with Zoom, you can do it under the table and other people can't see it. So like any of that stuff can be totally helpful in the moment. Longer term coping skills and something like mindfulness which I'm sure like lots of people talk about is like a muscle you need to flex and build and so when you first do it it's very hard to do in a situation where you're really overwhelmed and you're actively like struggling it's also hard to do maybe like the second or third time too because you're kind of getting used to it so that's something that like over time you build up and then you can use in I have a lot of patients who like weighted blankets for things like that too like because they're more physical people and so something like that can be helpful. Um, I think I'm a person who copes with things like hanging out with other people, like um, journaling because I like writing. But for me, I have to do it with my like actual pen and paper instead of writing on a computer because otherwise it feels more like work to me. Um, you know, those things can be quite helpful for me, I think, and are helpful for other people. As, as it comes to like social media and news and breaks, like you know, some people do it where they actually look at the time and they say, like, I'm not going to do it these hours a day or this many hours a day total. And I think that can help. I also think it can just help to be really aware of the fact that you're probably going to have reactions to things on social media and that you're allowed to take breaks depending on how you feel. And like actually checking in with yourself about it, particularly about sleep. So I don't use social. I try not to use social. I, I was going to make it sound like I was really good at this. Um, <laughs> I try not to use social before bed. Um, and I actually have to do things to make it 
not easy to do. So sometimes like move my phone outside my room for a while. I tried to use like a regular alarm clock. So it wasn't the thing that was like waking me up and putting me to sleep. And it wasn't the first thing I was looking at. Um, I also read books before bed that are like not at all related to things that might stress me out. So you might call those beach reads. (laughs) Um, But I've been trying to actively, as much as I actually love books that are about mental health, and issues in the world, um, they can contribute to my stress when I'm already stressed. So having the books to turn to that aren't all like that can be quite helpful. I basically just go down Reese Witherspoon's like book list and try to find (laughs) books to read. And that can be really helpful as like something to just distract you and not have you focus on all that's going on in the world. Yes, I agree. And I loved everything you said. Uh, I 100% agree on uh, the different things that people can try. And like you said, there's there's different coping mechanisms for all different people. Like not everyone's the same and not everyone is going to like one particular way to cope with something. Um, I know last week when everything was happening, uh, I felt flooded personally. And even as a mental health therapist, I was thinking, how am I I'm supposed to maybe be there for my community online and, you know, give them these tools on how to cope and how to process this type of, you know, event um, that, you know, just the, the, the empath of, of everything that was going on. And I was just in a funk and I felt like I can't even give back to my community right now because I'm having trouble processing and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm flooded by the content that's out there. And it was really hard to, to balance it all. And then also to worry about my children. And I, yeah, I definitely had to take some breaks myself last week and, uh, you know, be there in short doses just to protect my own mental health and from the burnout of all the emotions I was feeling. And I was short tempered just because the, the anxiety levels were so high, um, because it was such a heightened event. Um, it it was difficult. I definitely needed a few days to, to do that. And I think I just want to, as we end here to share with everyone that that's okay. You know, you can give yourself that grace and say, you know what, I'm, I'm really flooded by what's happened today. I'm not in my best self, but I need to, you know, take a step back and, you know, process this a little more and, you know, be a little bit better tomorrow. And I think just forgiving ourselves for days that we, that we are um, anxious or sad or just trying to process things is, is okay. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where can people find you? I know you're writing a book right now, too, if you want to share about that. And then where people can find you online to be in touch. I'm slowly writing a book right now, which maybe is going to be out about a year from September, sort of on burnout and mental health and healthcare workers, but also probably a lot about like what psychiatrists actually do. So maybe that'll be interesting to people. Um, the easiest way to find me is every version of Dr. Jesse Gold on various social media platforms. So Instagram, um, I, I'm at Dr. Jesse Gold, Twitter, same thing, trying to understand TikTok, same thing. And if you're like looking for some of the things I wrote, my website has all of them. So that's just drjessiegold.com. FYI, I spelled Jesse, J-E-S-S-I, because I was like the kid who didn't say like, okay, my name's Jessica. How do you shorten it? There's no E in Jessica. So I just took the CA off of it. So if that helps, I was that kid. (laughs) I I love it. I love it. It's very unique and I absolutely love it. I love the work you do. Thank you so much for being here today. And just, um, you know, processing all of this with us and um, educating us and helping us um, find other ways and, and, and ways to cope with everything that's been happening in our in our country um, over the last couple of weeks. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that people take care of themselves. 
Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.